And we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Thank you for electing to join me here for this episode. This is, believe it or not, the 18th in our chronology of the University of Notre Dame, its football team, and its fascinating history and people associated. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. We've got an excellent episode on deck here. And if you're a veteran around here, welcome back. We have an excellent episode on deck here. We have an incredibly unheralded former Irish player on the docket to discuss for today. And I know a lot of you like kind of the Frank Leahy era era episodes. Pardon me. That'd be uh, Frank Leahy era with E-R-A and not Frank Leahy slash era as in era Parsegian episodes. But anywho, if you do like those Frank Leahy era episodes, buckle in. But um, I can't thank you all enough again for electing to join me here today. So to get this party started, a special thank you to the show's fourth consensus All-American, Brad G. of Williamsburg, Indiana. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. Based on what we have discussed in our shared affinity for the history of Notre Dame, I think, I think Brad's really going to enjoy this one. And I'll talk more about the consensus All-American program here in a couple minutes. So thank you to Jeff Harrell for joining me the last episode, as well as Jim Augustine, owner of Augie's Locker Room, for hosting our conversation. I hope by now you've had an opportunity to listen to the conversation that Jeff and I were able to have about his new book, the upcoming groundbreaking Knut Rockney biography titled The Rockney of Ages. It's due out soon, this month. And uh, being something of a, a reader myself, I am just chomping at the bit uh, for this one. I cannot wait. And uh, I hope to make it up to South Bend again uh, for the Blue Gold game next month. And, I don't know, maybe link back up with Jeff and maybe bask in some of the glory around the book. And speaking of books, I was in a half-price books recently and I felt compelled to pick up a book titled The Greatest Brigade. How the Irish Brigade Cleared the Way for Victory in the American Civil War. And it was written in 2011 by Thomas J. Crogwell. And for a couple reasons here. One being we just covered Father Corby in fairly decent detail a few episodes ago. And that actually, that episode proved to be exceedingly popular. St. Paddy's Day is coming up, so that is something to be celebrated. But Due to all those things, I'll read a couple very short excerpts involving Corby from this book. These are two that I would have actually included in the Father Corby episode had I had them at my disposal. So the first one is from page 106. Now this takes place, this encounter takes place with Father Corby right before the Battle of Fredericksburg. So we're talking December 1862. So this is about seven months or so before the infamous Battle of Gettysburg and the infamous, you know, statue and the uh, painting and all that. So this is before that. So just as a quick backstory, the Battle of Fredericksburg absolutely decimated the Federal Army, the Union Army, and the fighting was extremely intense and per usual, the Irish Brigade kind of found themselves in the middle of it. 
but this was some time before the battle, and this is again from page 106. Quote, A rumor went around camp of the Irish Brigade that Burnside, Ambrose Everett Burnside, who was the commander of the Union Army, planned to have them assault the ridges above Fredericksburg. One anxious Irish private sought out one of the brigade's chaplains, Father William Corby. And in parentheses, before the war, Father Corby had taught at a small Catholic men's college in Indiana called Notre Dame. Father, the young man said, they are going to lead us over in front of those guns, which we have seen them placing unhindered for the past three weeks. To which Father Corby replied, do not trouble yourself. Your generals know better than that, end quote. So the Irish Brigade was a part of a frontal assault on those very guns, and they lost a great amount of their number. So unfortunately, common sense did not, did not win the day, and Father Corby's words did not prove to be much of a premonition. And so the second passage was actually at the dedication of the Irish Brigade's monument on the, battle, on the battlefield of Gettysburg. Uh, this is from July 2nd, 1888. So the 25th anniversary, so to speak, of the battle and the Irish Brigade's monument, we kind of talked about it. It has the Irish wolfhound laying at the base of the Celtic cross, which I kind of gave a description of during the Father Corby episode, but here we go. On July 22nd, this is from page 214 of Cragwell's book. The first monument to the Irish was dedicated at Gettysburg, exactly 25 years after the Battle of the Wheatfield. Set at the edge of the wheat field, the monument is a Celtic cross carved from green granite with an Irish wolfhound lying at the foot of the cross. That day, the brigade's two chaplains, Father Corby and Father Hewlett, said mass for a few dozen veterans of the Irish brigade who had come to Gettysburg for the dedication. Looking over the small congregation of elderly and middle-aged men, Father Corby said, quote, here is what is left of us. Where are the others? End quote. So again, that's from the book, The Greatest Brigade, How the Irish Brigade Cleared the Way to Victory in the American Civil War, written in 2011 by Thomas J. Cragwell. And I'd love Father Corby. I think he's extremely wise, uh, but also does remind us often of the true cost of war, which hopefully... People picked up on during the Notre Dame and the Civil War series. I uh, found it very, very interesting. It's something that we talked about. It was unavoidable when you talk about the American Civil War, what the human cost of the conflict truly was. So speaking of books, one final time. I'm going to try this cross-promotion thing for the next 30 seconds or so, so bear with me. If you'd like to support a completely different endeavor of mine, please consider picking up a copy of my most recent book, Black Ball in the Hoosier Heartland unearthing the Negro League's baseball history of Richmond, Indiana. I love baseball history, and I especially love Negro League's history. So this is a truly unexpected history of a small Indiana city who really spent about 50 years on a collision course time and time again with the legendary Negro Leagues. It's very easy to read. I think really engaging and full of incredible stories about oft-forgotten figures in history. So, in a sense, it's kind of like an extension to this podcast. Uh, it'll eventually make it to Amazon, but if you'd like it today, please search Black Ball and the Hoosier Heartland into Google, and you'll find it. And I will share a link on the Facebook page if anyone is interested. So, uh, any support is gratefully appreciated. 
And anyways, if you, as a friendly reminder, pardon me, if you dig the show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Purple Icon on your iPhone, Spotify, as well as Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. Please like, subscribe, do whatever you have to do to make sure you're getting all the new episodes. You can interact with the show on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onwardtovictory. You can send the show a good old-fashioned email at onwardtovictory at podcast. Excuse me, onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. So if you send something, I will read it. Recently, I put some polls out on Facebook to see what kind of episodes you all prefer as I continue to plan the spring and summer's docket uh, in the preseason, if you will. So don't hesitate to jump over to the Facebook page and cast a vote. It would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now, if you'd like to name yourself to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-American list, like Brad from earlier, you can do so very simply. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a Consensus All-American over the air. You can donate at paypal.me slash Onward to Victory for a one-time donation, or if you want to donate a certain amount per month, any denomination is appreciated, a dollar a month, that works, visit patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast. Any support is greatly appreciated, which, as you know, includes liking, listening, sharing, and corresponding with the show, which is always free. And since the show is free, please take the opportunity, if it arises, to tell friends, family, or whoever you think may be interested in the show. Uh, it takes quite a bit of time to put these episodes together, uh, so the bigger and more passionate the audience, the better. And as always, thank you to Joseph Rakish, who allows the show to use his song, Knut Rockney, as the theme. So you can find that song and a lot of other songs by Joseph uh, on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, pretty much wherever you digest music. So give it a spin. In keeping with show tradition, let's assign a player to represent this episode. So somewhat famous wearers of number 18 include NFL stalwart kicker John Carney. There's probably a lot of people out there who Otherwise, might have forgotten that John Carney went to Notre Dame because he had such a long NFL career. So it could also be the former defensive back Troy Pride episode. So I'll be excited to see where he ends up uh, in the upcoming draft and free agency period and all of that. We'll see where he goes. I think we should probably have a show first and give this one to a kicker, John Carney. So again, in case you forgot, Carney was a prolific NFL kicker. In fact, only four kickers in NFL history have more field goals than him, as well as more points than him. So he actually finally hung up the spikes in 2010 at age 46. So John Carney episode, here we go. So buckle in. I give you the patriarch of tight end you, the story of Notre Dame's Jim Munchler, right after this. In the last 15 seasons, just the last 15 seasons, names such as Alizé Mack, Durham Smythe, Ben Koyak, Troy Nicholas, Tyler Eifert, Kyle Rudolph, John Carlson, Anthony Fasano, and Jerome Collins have graced this spot for the Notre Dame football program. 
during the 2019 season, we were treated to the big playability of Cole Komet. All have played the spot of tight end for the blue and gold. Tight end, by its definition, is, quote, often seen as a hybrid position with the characteristics and roles of both an offensive lineman and a wide receiver. Like offensive linemen, they are usually lined up on the offensive line and are large enough to be effective blockers. On the other hand, unlike offensive linemen, they are eligible receivers, adept enough to warrant a defense's attention when running pass patterns, end quote. Notre Dame has been described as tight end university or tight end U. And the rise of Notre Dame's, quote, bread and butter position has actually coincided with the emergence of the position in the National Football League's ranks as well. So let's go back to the year 2000. The Baltimore Ravens, led by perhaps one of the best defenses of the modern NFL this side of the 1985 Bears, triumphed by a landslide over the New York Giants in Super Bowl 35. But... In looking at the regular season's top 25 pass catchers in terms of receptions, exactly one was a tight end. Probably not too terribly surprising to many, that tight end was NFL Hall of Famer and Chiefs mainstay Tony Gonzalez, who had the 10th most catches on the season. However, what actually may come as a surprise to many is that again, in the top 25 pass catchers in the league, there were more fullbacks than tight ends. So these days, they talk about a changing landscape in the NFL because these days, teams may only have a couple formations that even feature a fullback on the field. And even fewer where that fullback is actually touching the football. Fullbacks are predominantly used as blockers. And like I said, do not get very many touches. So to kind of walk down memory lane, fullbacks Richie Anderson and Larry Centers notched 88 and 81 receptions, respectively, on the 2000 season, which is unbelievable. It's hard to think of. I feel like Larry Centers might have had a season where he had more than 100 catches at some point. I feel like I remember seeing that. But fast forward to 2019. There are no fullbacks on the list. And four tight ends are in the top 17 alone. Because we are currently in an era where multiple tight end sets are regularly used for offenses and formations. And one where there are typically multiple tight ends among the most prolific pass catchers in the National Football League. And since it bears repeating, Notre Dame's emergence as a supplier of tight ends to the NFL has corresponded in step with the rise of the position in the professional ranks. But who was first in line? Who broke into the pro ranks at the position first from Notre Dame? A few names come up. In 1948, Bill O'Connor, also known as Zeke, played offensive end, which was the precursor to the tight end for the Irish from 1944 through 1947. He played four professional seasons in the United States and then two more in Canada. And he won the Grey Cup in 1951 with the Toronto Argonauts. This was 40 years before Irish wide receiver Rocket Ismail stunned the football world, 
signing with the Argonauts and won a Grey Cup in 1991. Shameless plug, we actually covered the Ismail saga fairly in-depth in episode 12. It's fascinating. But anyways, O'Connor is 93 years old as of this recording and is still living and resides in Toronto. Leon Hart is another name that immediately comes to mind when considering early Notre Dame tight end types. Like O'Connor, Hart also lined up at offensive end for the Irish, in addition to fullback. Hart's name resonates strongly with the Irish faithful, particularly since he was voted the winner of the 1949 Heisman Trophy, following the likes of Angelo Bertelli and Johnny Lujak as fellow Irish to take home the honor in the 1940s. Hart was actually selected first overall in the 1950 NFL Draft by the Detroit Lions, where he played eight seasons. And if we have any Detroit Lions fans in the audience, I'm sure you'll just be elated to hear that Hart was the member, was a member of three Lions teams who were NFL champions during the 1950s. The Cleveland sports fan in me sympathizes. Anyways, the guy we're going to hone in on actually overlapped with Hart for a season in 1949. He quietly logged more receptions than Hart, both at Notre Dame and in the pro ranks. Whereas Hart became much more of a traditional fullback later in his career and played a fair amount of defense, this guy developed a reputation as both a sure-handed receiver and a fearsome blocker and among the first tight ends that would fit into something of a modern mold. I'm talking about Jim Mutchler, the patriarch of tight end U. I know this may not be a name that rings many bells, and frankly, when you look at it, it's hard to pronounce. I had to practice it multiple times just to prepare myself for this episode. Mutchler. But let's go ahead and change that right now. James Francis Mutchler was born on March 31, 1930, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Beaver Falls, traditionally considered a blue-collar city, is located just 30 miles from Pittsburgh and had a population of about 17,000 when Mutchler was born. He was born to a blue-collar background, and his father was known as one of the best bricklayers in Beaver County. Mutchler, who acquired the nickname of Bucky when he was a kid, began his sports career as a multi-sports star in basketball, baseball, and, of course, football at Beaver Falls High School. The same Western Pennsylvania high school later attended by Joe Namath. As we'll find out, our Jim and Joe Namath couldn't have been any different. Mutchler was the captain of the football team and was named to the All-Western Pennsylvania squad as a senior. Although he wasn't what we would consider a big body for football, he stood about 6'1 and tipped the scales around 200 pounds, give or take a few pounds, and he was recruited to play offensive end for the vaunted University of Notre Dame Fighting Irish in 1948 under legendary coach Frank Leahy. In the media guide, he called being recruited by Leahy and the Irish his, quote, greatest sports thrill. For the staunchly Catholic Mutchler, it made perfect sense. 
After playing on the freshman and scout team his first year at Notre Dame, the 19-year-old Mutchler saw action in 10 games as a sophomore in 1949. He hauled in two passes and logged a critical interception versus Southern Methodist University. The 1949 team would notch a perfect 10-0 record and be named national champions of college football. So Bucky's junior season in 1950, he had his breakout campaign and it started in a hurry. He hauled in a Bob Williams pass to score the Irish's first touchdown of the season. The catch would be his first of a then school record 35 catches in a season, breaking the previous single season reception mark actually held by Leon Hart. The touchdown was his first of a team leading seven that season. From a pass catching standpoint, there had never been a campaign like Mutchler's 1950 season in school history. Now, despite the strong season from Bucky, the Irish stumbled to a 4-4-1 record in 1950. Mutchler, pictured in the media guide strumming a ukulele, stated that, quote, the greatest part of Notre Dame victories are the result of the school spirit, end quote. He declared his major within the commerce program, which would have been something of a precursor or offshoot of the modern-day business program. From a standpoint of Notre Dame stalwarts, the 1951 team, Mutchler's senior year, well, there were quite a few. Johnny Latner, eventual Heisman Trophy winner, suited up, as did talented running back Neil Warden. Bruising tackle Bob Toniff anchored the trenches. Among this crew, the Beaver Falls native was named captain his senior year. Donning number 85, Mutchler hauled in the 50th catch of his collegiate career during the seventh game of the season against Michigan State, which broke Hart's career reception mark of 49. Now with Warden in the backfield, the need to pass wasn't as prevalent as the season before, but Bucky still hauled in 20 passes, giving him 57 catches for his evolutionary Irish career. His single season reception school record would stand actually for 12 seasons until broken by Jim Kelly in 1962. The 1950 squad finished 13th in the country with a 7-2-1 record. After the season had concluded, university president Father Ted Hesburgh addressed the team concluding his speech with a passage directed to the players, where he personally lauded the captain. This is compliments of the Notre Dame archives. Quote, To Jim Munchler and his teammates, we are proud of the way you represented Notre Dame this year. We hope that all of you who come to us as young men will leave us matured in mind and heart and soul, as well as in body. We hope that you who come to us strong in body will leave strong in your attachment to the values that matter in life and that you will play it for all you are worth as you played football here. We hope that all you players find your intelligence growing towards Christian wisdom during your years here at Our Ladies University. 
that you will be prepared to leave better men, prepared to work as hard and intelligently and honestly as you played the game. God bless and keep all of you. End quote. Man, I love Father Hesburgh. Anywho, Mutchler was drafted by the Dallas Texans in the 12th round of the 1952 NFL draft. And he was actually the fourth Irish player taken in the draft, which featured future Pro Football Hall of Famers Ollie Matson, Frank Gifford, and Gino Marchetti, among others. Though he was drafted to play professional football, Mutchler spent the next two years in the Marine Corps, serving in Japan and Korea. The tough, gritty Mutchler, upon returning to the States, had found that his former parent club, the Dallas Texans, had sold his contract to the Baltimore Colts, and he began his professional career in 1954. In retrospect, this may be hard to believe, but he only made the Colts by a thread. Camp was tough, he told the Baltimore Sun in 2009. Coach Weeb Eubank threatened to cut me because I had, quote, army legs. Good for marching, but not for running. Army legs or not, Mutchler was tough as nails. Above being a exemplary pass catcher, he developed a reputation for an absolutely bruising blocker despite his relative lack of size. He was also a selfless teammate, willing to play offense, defense, or even special teams, whatever helped the team win. He broke out his second NFL season, where he logged 33 catches and scored seven touchdowns, leading the Baltimore Colts in both marks. In 1956, the Colts drafted a young, upstart signal caller, who, like Mutchler, also hailed from western Pennsylvania. You may have heard of him, Johnny Unitas. The year before, the Colts had drafted Texan Raymond Berry, who doubled as a tight end and a split end. With Unitas, Berry, Mutchler, and lineman Art Donovan, the Colts had built a nucleus that would prove exceedingly competitive in the late 1950s. In 1957, Mutchler led the NFL in touchdown catches from his tight end position with eight. He was voted to the Pro Bowl that season, and he was joined by teammates Unitas, Donovan, and fullback Alan Amici. Raymond Berry later said, I don't remember Jim ever dropping a pass. He wasn't big by today's standards, but he had an explosive power with the way he unfolded on people. I think that's an interesting way of saying it. But the Pro Bowl was obviously a performance-based honor. But Barry continued that, quote, Jim was the complete package and a total team player, never ego-driven. He was honest in every respect. You'd have a hard time finding a guy with more character than Jim, end quote. In 1958, the Baltimore Colts found themselves in the NFL championship game after logging a 9-3 regular season record. Though Mutchler, now 28, finished third on the team in catches, he still finished the season with seven touchdowns. The 1958 NFL championship game has been dubbed the greatest game ever played, just in case you were wondering. But this was a little less than a decade before the first modern Super Bowl was played. Squaring off against the New York Giants, the game was tied 17-17, 
after four quarters and the teams headed into overtime. This entire game was a flashpoint moment for the young burgeoning National Football League. 45 million people tuned in on their televisions and the game was hosted at the legendary Yankee Stadium. Though Raymond Berry's 12 catches that day tends to grab much of the ink, Jim Mutchler hauled in a critical six-yard pass from Unitas to set the ball up on the Giants' one-yard line. This is in overtime, and Mutchler would have scored the touchdown, the game-winning touchdown, had he not slipped on ice <laughs> near the sideline. It's on YouTube, it's great. Um, not him falling, but this whole sequence. But it wouldn't matter, because mere moments later, Amici plowed into the end zone for the game-winning score. Showing off the other equally impressive facet of his game, Mutchler is seen on that play down-blocking on a Giants defender, paired with Lenny Moore, his kick-out block to the outside. Between Mutchler and Moore's blocks, Amici could have walked into the end zone, but you get a good sense of just how punishing of a blocker the Western Pennsylvanian was. And the Colts ended up winning the game then, 23-17. Quote, Jim always said that play was his proudest moment in football, his wife Joan later said. Unitas always gave Mutchler a bit of good-natured grief for not punching in the game-winning score. In his authentic fashion, and honest fashion, Jim was reputed to have replied, quote, He, as in Amici, was on the Ed Sullivan show that night. I would have been scared to death to do that, <laughs> end quote. The Colts would win the NFL championship the following year as well, and Mutchler would log five catches and 40 yards in that championship game. He would retire after the 1961 season, after having spent all eight of his professional seasons as a Baltimore Colt. For a tight end at the time, his numbers were pretty eye-popping. 220 career catches and 40 touchdowns. He also averaged nearly 17 yards per reception, which even today is quite, quite good. Of his eight seasons, he was in the top five in the entire league in touchdown receptions five times. He only missed one game his entire career. It isn't much of a stretch to call Mutchler among the premier tight ends of the 1950s, particularly due to his ability to catch and block with equal proficiency. During his last season in the NFL, another Western Pennsylvania tight end emerged, who then became the premier tight end of the 1960s, Mike Ditka. After football, he sold insurance and stayed very active in the greater Baltimore community. He was inducted into the Beaver County Hall of Fame in 1976. Mutchler died on April 10th, 2015, at age 85. One of his old buddies may have summed him up well with, quote, he believed in knocking the guy down, then reaching down and helping him up, end quote. Jim Mutchler, the patriarch of the Notre Dame tight end. We'll be right back. All right, well, 
needless to say, there are many times that I wish this was my full-time job. Uh, that was a really fun dive for me to do. Uh, it's been pretty unmistakable, particularly during this 21st century, that Notre Dame has turned out many quality tight ends. Uh, tight ends who were excellent in both the college and the pro ranks. And so my mind has often wondered, who was kind of the first in line? Who was the one that, you know, had a, had a prolific college career, but you know, also kind of broke the mold on the pro level as well. And Leon Hart did come to mind. He, I knew he played end, and I, of course he won the Heisman Trophy. But as far as pure tight end, I was able to find Jim Munchler, and, and boy, I'm glad I did because it's hard not to admire a player like him, uh, someone who wasn't, uh, he didn't shy away from anything. You know, he obviously had a propensity to score touchdowns, uh, a very glamorous play in football, as we know, but he also had no problem throwing the lead block on any on any play or being the good teammate, playing special teams. So it's easy to admire a guy like Jim Munchler. And honestly, it was awesome to be able to do this, this episode about him. I didn't really know much about him. I had seen a football card of his, I think from maybe the early 60s when he was with the Colts, and I collect old cards. So I happened to see a card of him at some point, saw he was from Notre Dame, thought that was really cool. I wasn't super familiar with him, so hopefully we all got to do a little bit of learning together there. And as I've kind of mentioned, I don't traditionally choose topics that I know a bunch about because, I mean, frankly, what, what kind of fun would that be? You have to always be open to learning new things. And I'm someone who, if I get into something, I like to be very grounded in the history. And so I guess that's maybe one of the reasons why I just decided to start this podcast, was to become more grounded in my Notre Dame fandom and have a strong sense of history and a strong sense of place every time I have the opportunity to go up to campus. So again, please, 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 if you enjoyed this and you want more, Please subscribe. Uh, the subscription numbers are really critical. Um, it, makes sure, it ensures that the show continues to get out, and that way you all don't miss an episode. So please subscribe. Jump over to Facebook. Like the Facebook page. That's where most of the updates are kind of funneled through. Please participate in the polls. By now, they're a few days old, so you might just have to go to the page, the Facebook page, and they're at the top of the page, so they're easy to find. But please participate. I'm trying to do episodes that you all like to hear, and unless you tell me what episode, kind of episodes you like to hear, whether they're like this one, about an individual event or person and it's story-based, or if you like the more interview type of uh, episodes, there's that. Just There's a couple pulls, so please let me know what you're really into. Or, you know, if you're interested, I've done a couple episodes on the current edition of the Irish. I always talk about the current edition of the Irish, but I've had a couple episodes just about the current edition of the Irish. If that's more what you're into, let me know. I could uh, kind of be a chameleon with all of this, and I enjoy talking about any bit of it. So please jump over to Facebook and make sure that you like and follow the page if you're a Facebook persuasion. And if you are, jump in and, and put in a vote at the polls, please. So uh, I hope everyone's staying healthy, and I know that there's a lot of hypervigilance surrounding the coronavirus, and a lot of it is probably nauseating to a lot of people, and I know that they say that the people who are most affected are the elderly or the young, or, you know, there's a lot going around. So just please make sure you stay healthy and stay safe, and if it is truly something that mostly affects 
uh, older people, there's no better time than right now to kind of check on um, you know your family and your friends who might be a little bit older and maybe in that age demographic because we're all kind of in this together. And like I said, I know that the the coverage, the press coverage, could probably get a little nauseating. But however, it's always a good chance. It's a good opportunity to show some kindness towards your loved ones. So. I guess that's about it. Though I did see Dublin canceled the St. Paddy's Day Parade, which is really sad. And there's events across the country being being canceled for just precautionary measures. So I know that's highly inconvenient for a lot of people. And so hopefully we ride out the end of this storm sooner rather than later. But I really hope you enjoyed this. Please, if you have an opportunity again, I'm kind of shoving a lot into this... <laughs> Kind of shoving a lot into this outro here, but if you are interested in my book, it's called Black Ball in the Hoosier Heartland, unearthing the Negro Leagues baseball history of Richmond, Indiana. Uh, as I mentioned, just jump on to uh, Google, search, search Black Ball in the Hoosier Heartland. You'll find it. It'll be on Amazon here soon. However, if you are super interested and you want to just learn more about it before you make a you know $15, $15 financial commitment, uh, message the show or email the show. Uh, I'm happy to answer anything and uh, tell you why I think you'll enjoy it. So anyways, without further ado, Blue and Gold Games coming up. We got some more exciting episodes coming down the pike. We're going to be we're going to be in the football season before we know it. It's really exciting. I guess it's time for me to sign off. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast and in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish!